feel like I just walked into a WWE event <laughs> and I'm ready to wrestle. Who's coming to the top ropes with me? Hey, welcome. My name is Josh and uh, one of the pastors here this morning. And uh, as Robin mentioned, we're starting a new series this morning, A Life in the Age of Outrage. Have you noticed a little outrage around you lately? Over the last few months, last few years? Yeah, it seems to be all over the place. And, um, you know, uh, as we get going, uh, just as we start this series, one of the things I want to point out uh, right away and encourage you in is to potentially pick up this book. It's called Christians in the Age of Outrage by a guy named Ed Stetzer. And uh, I had Ed Stet- Dr. Ed Stetzer as a professor, and uh, he's, he's just an incredibly winsome guy in the way that he writes. It's really accessible. He's, he's entertaining to read. But this book came out uh, in 2018, of October 2018, and uh, the subtitle, and this is really where our focus is going to be, is how to bring our best when the world's at its worst. How as followers of Jesus do we bring our best when the world is totally at its worst? And so just on the front end, you need to know a lot of the illustrations, some of the research I'll present over the course of this series comes right out of this book. And so if you happen to pick up a copy and then you come after me after the service and go, I know where you got that. I'm like, you're right, you do. I just told you. So there you go. But we're also, of course, going to be in God's word as well. Um, because if God didn't write it down, who cares? Amen? And so we're going to be there as well. Well, when we think of outrage, I wonder, how many of you remember the outrage from a few years ago, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been involved in kind of church evangelical bubble culture, the outrage over these red cups. Anybody remember that? In 2015, these red Starbucks cups. Can't believe it. Do you know where all this came from? Let me tell you the story, uh, if you're not familiar with it. There was a guy, his name is Joshua Fierstein. I think I'm saying his name right. And uh, he is a former pastor and he has kind of a social media platform. And he went to a Starbucks and uh, they had these new red, just totally red, nothing written on them. Mine says Mary Coffee. Nothing written on them, cups. And uh, he recorded this video and posted it online. Check it out. Do you realize that Starbucks wanted to take Christ and Christmas off of their brand new cups? That's why they're just plain red. In fact, do you realize that Starbucks isn't allowed to say Merry Christmas to customers? Well, I decided instead of simply boycotting, well, why don't we start a movement? So when I went in and I asked for my coffee, they asked for my name, and I told them my name is Merry Christmas. So guess what? Starbucks I tricked you into putting Merry Christmas on your cup. And I'm challenging all great Americans and Christians around this great nation, go into Starbucks and take your own coffee selfie. Well, this guy, he went to Starbucks, got that cup, recorded that video, and he posted it online. And then he tagged like all kinds of different media outlets and Fox News and others picked it up. And the next thing you know, it went viral. And there's this huge outrage among uh, the Christian community about these red coffee cups. Important stuff, right? Those are in coffee cups. And some of you, if you're not a Christian yet, or maybe you're watching online, you're not, you're like, I remember that. And I remember thinking, those Christians are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. What in the world are they so fired up about this red cup for? Well, uh, you need to know that uh, what he said there in that video, actually, the only thing it really accomplished was to promote his social media presence. And much of what he said, well, here, let me read to you. It was an article from 
Vox, they write this about the reality of him just trying to use Christian outrage to raise his platform. The website Vox said, explained this. They said, Fierstein's new Starbucks outrage video might be the biggest of his social media career. It's a rant stemming from a conservative Christian belief that there's a war on Christmas and that every year during the holidays, Christians are persecuted by companies. Well, of course, that'd be interesting. It'd be kind of outrageous if there was much truth to it because listen to this, Vox goes on. They say, uh, Fierstein's most blatant untruth and the reason for all the current furor about the 2015 Red Cup is the implication that Starbucks at one time printed the word Christmas on its holiday cups and is now being stifled or stifling itself from doing so. But in reality, over the past six years, Starbucks, which does not identify itself as a Christian company, has never put the words Merry Christmas on its holiday cups. Instead, it's used wintry and vaguely holiday-esque imagery and language, including ornaments that say things like joy, hope, snowmen, and holly. So I wanted to find out, is this true? And I went and found uh, pictures of all of Starbucks holiday cups back to 1997. And guess what? Not one of them says Christmas on it anywhere. In fact, in 1997, the cup was purple. They must have really hated Christmas back then. How many of you remember that and maybe even feeling a little stirred up about it at the time? You know, uh, in fact, it's, it's understandable. I mean, uh, we love the Lord Jesus and we want his name to be made great. Uh, but ultimately, in the end, it's really not Starbucks' responsibility to tell people Merry Christmas. That's ours, isn't it? as followers of Jesus. And uh, not only that, but the, the outrage that things like this stir up, all it does is harm the gospel message that we're sent to proclaim. And it makes us look like fools and it makes our king look totally irrelevant to a watching world. Well, maybe you can laugh with me at ourselves a little bit here. Uh, check out some of the reaction then that people had in our culture to this outrage about a red cardboard cup. Folks, uh, you know, we're just past Halloween, which means we're about to enter the magical season of getting angry that there's not enough talk about Christmas. <laughs> Jim? Starbucks is stirring up controversy over its plain red cups for the holiday season. People are mad about this cup because they're saying Starbucks is being anti-Christmas. The old cups had uh, snowflakes and Santa's sleigh and elves, you know, all the things that you find in the Bible. I mean... I think we all remember the story of when baby Jesus was visited by the three wise Frosties. <laughs> now Starbucks is completely devoid of any trace of the holiday besides the Christmas tree ornaments, advent calendars, CDs of Christmas music, Christmas-themed gift cards, Christmas cookies, and giant displays of their Christmas blend coffee. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> now, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're on the outside watching this, what are you thinking? Those Christians, why would I ever want to follow Jesus? They're outraged about a coffee cup. You know what? I've got better things to do with my time. I hope you do too, by the way. Because here's the point this morning as we kind of head into this series. We're living in an age of outrage and, and as followers of Jesus, we're not immune to it. Now, some things, there are things to be outraged about. There's, there's right things to be outraged about and to be angry about. 
But there's a whole lot of things that we find ourselves, no matter your background, no matter your walk of life, especially in the culture we're living in, where we get outraged and incensed about things that really don't matter. And so in large part, one of the things I wanna challenge you with during this series, and I don't know, maybe I'll just uh, use my red Starbucks coffee cup every, every week here, the next few weeks to remind you, don't get outraged about things that don't matter. Don't get outraged about things that don't matter. Because like I said, it's not Starbucks' job or any company's job to tell people Merry Christmas. That's the job of the followers of Jesus Christ. We're the ones with the message to proclaim. And we're, it's to be expected that others wouldn't say it. Why would they? Well, uh, you know, as, as we continue and uh, kind of launch into this series, uh, Today, this red Starbucks cup has been replaced with all kinds of different things. I mean, that we get outraged about. The lowest hanging fruit in all of it is everything around COVID and uh, wearing a mask and fill in the blank about everything else, right? That, that we get outraged about. That in the end, why are we so fired up about some of these things? If, if you don't receive it, you know, we're part of, if you're visiting or if you're new and you don't understand this, we're, we're part of an organization called the Evangelical Free Church of America. So that's kind of our tribe, so to speak. It's other churches, EFCA churches. And you can go to their website, efca.org, and you can actually sign up at the very bottom of that homepage uh, for an update. And they'll send you like this newsletter every couple of weeks, and there's some good articles in it. And one that came out in the most recent one this last week was an article uh, quoting some research from a guy named Tom Rayner. He's the CEO of a group called Lifeway. Uh, and uh, he's a pretty trusted Christian leader. And recently he stated that up to 50% of pastors are planning on leaving their current ministries once a new normal is established after COVID. By the way, I'm not in that 50%. I don't have those plans unless God does something. But the reason I say this, and I want you to hear some of these things, is because as followers of Jesus, we're called to maintain, those of you who are followers of Jesus, to maintain unity in the spirit, to maintain the bond of peace that we have. And that's incredibly hard in a culture that's increasingly polarized and all over the map. So here's some of the reasons, uh, many of the prominent reasons, the six prominent, he says, uh, that some pastors are planning to leave ministry. They're weary from the pandemic, just like everyone else. They're dispirited by the division among church members about the post-quarantine church. Pastors are discouraged about losing members and attendance. They're uncertain about the financial future of their ministry. They're, uh, number five, they're receiving much more criticism as they implement COVID safety protocols, address cultural challenges, steward resources, all while trying to care for their people. You know, they all of a sudden have to play the role of both pastor and chief medical officer of the church. Pastors' workloads have increased greatly. On top of increased pastoral care needs, most have had to adjust their ministries. Most churches have to, to provide new online opportunities that weren't being offered prior to COVID-19. And, and friends, I, I just say that because it's a, for me at least, because that's my vocation as a pastor, it's a, it's a, it's a, pretty stark reminder that we're in a day and age where things are so polarized and people are all over the place. And though I don't have any plans to go anywhere, I do share some of those concerns when, 
when I look at God's people and I see division and unrest and just getting upset about things that don't matter. Let's not be those people, amen? Well, uh, with that, uh, let me do one more thing by way of setup and then we're gonna pray and we're gonna dive into uh, 2 Corinthians chapter five today. I, I think, you know, this series, I'd read this book a little over a year ago and had been thinking over the last year um, about doing something like this leading up into the election and uh, I think that it may end up being more timely than ever because people are upset. There is social outrage. There is injustice all over. I mean, for beyond COVID, I mean, think of the things that have happened over the last year with, with racial injustice coming to light. And by the way, that's one thing to absolutely be outraged about, especially as followers of Jesus. But, but beyond that, the election, uh, masks, um, fill in the blank. There's so many things. School. Do my kids go to school? Do they stay home? Can they participate in sports? Can they not? All those things. But beyond that, that, that outrage, we're starting to feel like a shift in culture. Because if, if you would go back 50 to 100 years ago, and, and Stetzer talks about this and uh, uh, some of the research, if you go back 50 to 100 years ago, you, you would find during those times that most people, close to 100% of Americans and Canadians for that matter, or, or uh, uh, the, of English in Great Britain, they, they would identify themselves as Christians. But uh, over the last 15, 20 years, that's really changed to where instead of everyone identifying as Christians and having kind of that same cultural basis, uh, actually there's about 25%. Uh, he uses this illustration a lot just with uh, his hand, and so I'm gonna steal that as well. About 25% of, of people now identify themselves not as Christians in our culture over the last 15 to 20 years. And then uh, when you look at the 75% who do, uh, that number is really kind of high now because over the last 15 to 20 years, about 1% a year has moved from this category up to the non-Christian category, not identifying as a follower of Jesus anymore. And then in recent years and in the kind of the age we're living in right now, there's a radical shift that's, have you felt this? where maybe as a follower of Jesus, you feel more and more on the outside. And that's because there's this 50% in the middle. See, of this 75%, there's only about 25% that actually live their lives and shape their lives according to scripture and according to God's word. Like it's, it, it shapes everything that they, they, they do. They, they go to church, they, they read the word, uh, they understand life according to the Bible and according to Jesus. It's a major part of their life, they're devout. This other 50% in the middle, uh, they identified down here, maybe in terms of the way they live their lives or culturally, but here's what's happening. And more than just 1% a year, the tide has turned to where basically that entire 50% in the middle is now shifting up here. I can't do this with my finger, so I gotta hold it down. This, this is going up here and they're identifying more and more as, uh, as a secular lifestyle. Or maybe they don't argue with Christianity, but they certainly don't embrace it in their day-to-day -day life or the way they live their lives. And so what's happened for those who follow Jesus, if that's you, you may be feeling more and more like something has totally changed and everybody's just leaving the church and leaving your team. And that's because there's been a big shift and it feels like that, doesn't it? 
But do you know the reality is that as you look at research over the last 30 to 40 years, from, uh, from Pew, from Baylor, from a handful of different places, the reality is that 25, about 23 to 25% of people who uh, devoutly identify as followers of Jesus hasn't really changed. It's ebbed and flowed over the years, gone up and down a percentage point here and there. But for the most part, it's the same number of people answering the same questions today as 30, 40, 50 years ago. The difference is that other 50% in the middle has made a shift, and so now you feel more alone and on your own. Has anyone else felt that? Does it make sense? So here's the point of this series and where we're going, is that in light of that, now that we're not on the majority team, we're in a post-Christian culture. Make no mistake about it. We gotta figure out new ways to, to go about living li- our lives as followers of Jesus that are faithful to him. And by the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, we're gonna talk about that this morning. We'd love for you to become one and to join the team. Uh, but, but really speaking especially to those of you who've decided to trust Jesus this morning. And we gotta live our lives differently in order to engage our culture and love them the way Jesus has sent us to. So with that, long intro today. Let me pray. We're gonna open up 2 Corinthians chapter five and we're gonna take off from there. You ready? Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And uh, Jesus, thank you that uh, you're faithful to us as we sang this morning. You you are powerful, that you love us, that you send us with a message of reconciliation that's yours and that you go before us and you go with us. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you... uh, Use me this morning as we uh, look at your word and teach me, teach all of us, uh, remind us of of really truly who we are and how we ought to live. Help us to guard our moral outrage so that when we are angry and upset, we're we're angry and upset about the right things and not things that ultimately just do not matter. Lord, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your word. Uh, Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're feeling like an outcast a little bit, you're not alone. And in fact, that's been the story of of God's people all throughout history. And, And this book has a lot to say about that. God has a lot to say to his people on how they ought to live as people who aren't a majority culture. Who are who are different from the culture. And one of the most powerful is a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter five. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you turn there with me now, 2 Corinthians chapter five. And uh, we're gonna start here in verse 18. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, all of this is from God. Paul starts off here in this passage this morning saying, everything we're gonna talk about here is from God. It's it's a message from God through Jesus to you to reconcile you to God, to make that relationship between you and God, that friendship, right. Then in verse 19, he says, that is, uh, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses, in other words, their sins against them, and entrusting to us, 
as Jesus' followers, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, because of all that, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, the Bible uses a number of different uh, metaphors for who we are with this message, but uh, this one of ambassadors is a powerful one. Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. So he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, let's unpack this idea of being an ambassador. What's that mean to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing you need to know, if you're an ambassador, you've been sent. And you've been sent by a king, by not a king, the king, right? Now, when you think of an ambassador and how ambassadors work, we have examples of this all over uh, in our culture today. You know, we think of people who represent countries abroad, and they do, whose job is to, you know, uh, maybe help avert some kind of major crisis or just uh, normalize relationships with other countries, uh, strike up some kind of a deal for trade and economic prosperity. And that, that ambassador is sent out, and when relations relationships are good with another country, they have uh, good relationships with people in another country and it's, it's for the mutual benefit of both parties. Well, in Paul's day, and there, there were ambassadors like that, but it was a little bit different because uh, the, the dominant culture, the dominant empire, that of Rome, didn't send out ambassadors. They didn't send them out. They're in charge. What do you need an ambassador for if you're in charge? Well, uh, Martin Percy, uh, he's a British theologian, uh, writes about this, that, that some people though, some groups, some uh, groups of people still did send ambassadors out, but mostly it was for the, uh, the point of uh, entreating Rome and trying to gain favor there. Here's what he writes about uh, first century ambassadorship. <clears throat> In the first century, an ambassador was an ad hoc representative, usually of a community, though occasionally of an association or individual commissioned to carry out a particular task who returned to the community, association or individual on completion of the task. So, so part of the role of an ambassador in Paul's day is you're, you're sent out from a community with something to do and some kind of message and then you return after you've completed what you were sent to do. Pretty simple. He goes on and he says, almost invariably, I already kind of said this, but almost invariably at the heart of an ambassador's task was an appeal to the person or community who received him would go out and they would make some kind of an appeal, ultimately for the benefit of both parties. And once that was the main part of their task, when the task was completed, they came home. That's what they did. Well, uh, think about that in light of being an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You've been sent by Jesus Christ out into the world, into a place that is not home, with a task to accomplish, and that task includes a message. And once that task is complete, when you've completed that task, what does Jesus do? He calls you home. Like, everything God's given me to do, that's my prayer, like I'm going, and as soon as I wrap it up, when he says, okay, Josh, that's it, I just drop dead, that's it, we're done. <laughs> That'd be great. I mean, that's, really, that's the way it works. God gives us a task, he sends us on a mission, and he calls us home when it's accomplished. 
That's why he says we're ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal through us. So we implore you, that's the message, be reconciled to God. Jesus even said this. He, he prays in the garden the night before he's crucified. In John 17, 18, Father, just as, you, just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. And then he tells his disciples the same thing in John chapter 20. He, he says this, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And friends, anyone, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've turned to him in faith, he's called you to himself, the next thing he does without fail is he sends you out as his ambassador to the world in which you live. And, and he sends you at his pleasure. It's at the king's pleasure that an ambassador goes out with their message. Because this is important to get your mind around because you might be thinking, okay, Josh, I get it. You know, I've, I've trusted Jesus, you're telling me, and uh, we could spend a lot of time looking through scripture that just pointed to the fact that once you trust Jesus, you're sent on mission. But you know what? I, I just kind of feel dumb. I don't know that I have anything to say. I don't know that I have the words. I certainly don't have the training. I don't, I, I can't, I won't. I, I just, I don't know. You ever feel that a little bit? There's good news for you because check this out. In uh, his letter to the first, his first letter to the church in Corinth, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What, what Paul's saying here is that, you know what? If you don't feel adequate on your own, you're not. But the king who sent you makes you adequate. And it's a, his pleasure that he sent you out. And you're just to go by faith. And by the way, we're sent by a king. So that's the first thing I understand. It's you're, you're sent as an ambassador. And I've, I've already said this, the second thing though, that you're sent with a message. We're sent by a king with a message. Well, what, what's that message? Well, Paul told the church in Corinth, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter four, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ. See, it's easy to go and think that uh, the message I proclaim, and that's what our culture likes to say, it's just, it's all about you, right? How many followers are you gonna get on Instagram until you can be an influencer, until you can sell ads on your YouTube channel? But we don't proclaim ourselves. Jesus Christ is who we proclaim. We proclaim as him, him, him as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, uh, we proclaim Jesus as Lord. We proclaim ourselves as servants. Do you know the mission of our church? What is it? Somebody help me out. We are sent to what? Love people. That's the first part of our mission, right? So, so we're sent to proclaim Jesus as Lord as servants to others, is what Paul writes. We're sent, in other words, to love people. It's a message of love. And then what do we do after we love on them? We invite them to follow Jesus with us. And ultimately, friends, this is a message of reconciliation. It's a message of reconciliation, and it's reconciliation with God, with our King. 
Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And friend, you've been sent with a message of reconciliation to the world. That's why a prophet Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news because you're fulfilling your call as an ambassador of Jesus Christ in whatever realm of life you live. In school, in the marketplace, in ministry, whatever it is. And what is, though, this message? Because some of you, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're like, okay, this sounds like a lot of church talk, Josh, but what's the message? Well, let me share it with you briefly. The message of reconciliation with God is this, that, friend, on our own, myself included, we're sinful and messed up. And we've sinned ultimately, all sin, the Bible teaches, is ultimately against a perfect and holy God. And because of that, the wage of our sin, Romans 3.23, is death. We deserve to die. And not just physical death, but spiritual death, being separated, eternal death, apart from God's grace and under his wrath. We're God's enemies. Children of wrath, Paul tells the Ephesians. But there's good news. That though the wages of sin is death, while we were, uh, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, the wages, I think I said the wrong reference there earlier, 623, the wages of sin is death, 323, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, uh, that uh, we're enemies of God. But the good news is that while we were still his enemies, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin and for your sin. He paid the penalty I deserve to pay and that you deserve to pay. And why did he do it? so that you could be reconciled to God. See, that's what what comes right after Paul says we're ambassadors. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you could become the righteousness of God, so that you could become brand new. That's the message of reconciliation. And reconciliation is simply restoring friendship with God, restoring relationship. And if you would believe upon the Lord Jesus, repent, which just means to turn, turn to him, you, you will be saved. You will, it's that simple. But here's the deal. It also leads then to reconciliation with other people, to reconciliation of relationships. Over and over and over in the New Testament, we read about the, the one and others. If you've been a part of the church for a while, maybe you've heard of these, the one and others, you know, love one another, bear with one another, be kind to one another, Ephesians 4, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just like God in Christ forgave you. And part of living out then that message of reconciliation as a, true ambassador of the king is, are you, are you willing? Now, not all relationships can be reconciled. I get that. Or, or won't be for whatever reason. But are you willing? Is the door open for reconciliation? That's the mark of a faithful ambassador, the message of reconciliation. And this message, friends, is for all people. It's not limited. Like, this isn't just a message for, for us. This is a message for every person on the face of the earth, every person in our community. No no matter their skin color, no matter their gender, no matter their intellect, no matter what they've done, no matter what's been done to them. This is a message of reconciliation that every person on the planet needs to hear and that you and I have been sent with. Acts 17, the times of ignorance of God overlooked, but now he commands all people, all people everywhere to repent. 
And friends, this, this message of reconciliation, ultimately it's reconciliation with God and it's all about Jesus. That's how Paul started this whole thing off. In Second uh, Corinthians chapter five, he said, all this is from God, verse 18, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. It's all about Jesus. Acts 13, uh, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That's a pretty big statement. Freed you from everything you couldn't be freed from by the law or on your own, left to your own. That's huge. And that's the message we're sent with. We're sent by a king with a message. And this last piece, this third piece, we're sent to a foreign land. To a foreign land. In other words, uh, you might say it like this, we're exiles or we're sojourners. We're just passing through. This isn't home, in other words. An exile is somebody who's living in a place that's not their home, either by force or by compulsion and Here's what you need to know. If, if you're in exile, if God says you're in exile, this isn't home. Or to say in common, this ain't home. It's not. It, Peter, when he's writing his first letter, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. They've been spread all, all out all over the place, away from Jerusalem. They were persecuted for their faith and now they're not home. Well, friends, we don't live at home either. This place is not home. So as we close, let me just end with that truth. You're sent to a foreign land and this is not your home. So here's the sum of the matter today. Live like it. Live like it. Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He says, our citizenship is in Kosciuszko County. Is that what he writes? You're like, no, Josh, it is. I have my voter registration. I'm ready to go in about nine days. I'm ready. I'm all signed up. Okay, but that's a temporary citizenship, right? No, Paul says, uh, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we wait a savior. I didn't say this earlier, but I'll say it just now because it comes to mind that you know, we are going to vote. I hope you vote if you have the opportunity to the next week or so. Whoever you vote for, remember that's not your savior. They'll prove themselves wrong on that one by about 3.30 that afternoon. We don't wait for a savior at the polls. We wait for a savior from heaven and he's not elected. He just comes and sets up shop because he would never win the election. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Friends, this isn't home. So that means living in a foreign land is a worldview issue. It means recognizing, and let me ask you, what lens do you look at life through? Do you look at it like this is all there is? And everything's about right now and the next 20, 30, 40 years and my retirement and my vocation. Or what lens are you looking through? Are you looking through it through the lens of of God's word? A biblical worldview that recognizes this is not home. It's not your home. You know, there's some research that's come out 2015 from Lifeway that... uh, 
only 40% of regular attenders read their Bible occasionally, at least once or twice a month, of those who go to church. Only about 20 to 25% read it every day. And then there's 20%, uh, based on this research in 2015, that there's about 20% who never crack the book at all. How are you going to have a worldview that keeps you from being outraged about things that don't matter unless you're in this book? Unless you're in a life group rubbing shoulders with other believers so that you can grow in that way to be like Jesus. It's a worldview issue, friends. It is. Let me just end with this thought. How many of you have ever been to a foreign country? Anybody? Uh, I've had the opportunity to go to India a number of times. And in going to India, some of you have had the, uh, had the joy of kind of coming with me. Hopefully some of you will get to go uh, sometime in the future. And uh, when you get to India, let me just tell you, it is unlike anything in Indiana. Those last two letters, when you take them off, the N and the A, from Indiana to India is a huge change. Huge change. I mean, everything looks different. Everything smells different. And you find yourself, you don't understand the language and just naturally you find yourself living a little bit differently in a culture that's not your own. Uh, you're, you're careful how you approach people. Uh, you try to be winsome. You try to understand and cross a cultural divide. You try not to draw maybe too much attention to yourself that would be undue. And, and the way you think about life for those two weeks while you're there is just totally different than when you're here. Well, guess what? In the same way, you've been sent by a king with a message to a foreign land, and this is a foreign land. So you need to have that worldview to think like it so that you live differently. So that you understand this isn't home. That I've got to communicate with a culture that's radically different if I'm going to communicate this message than the one that Jesus calls me to. And I need to love the people of this culture who might be radically different than me because Jesus commands me to. And it's a message of reconciliation. And it, it requires a shift of worldview. Friends, you're an ambassador sent by a king with a message to a foreign land. Let me pray.